take it personally. A final note, the phrases don't take this personally and don't take yourself so seriously are misguided suggestions. Do take it personally. Do take yourself seriously. The opposite of so what is to take it personally. Work is deeply personal. Leading is intensely personal. Ultimately, everything is personal. Assuming you've addressed the question, who am I? What price am I willing to pay to be that? This is your life. I hope it has its hilarious moments. However, this is serious business. Or what's the point? If you don't take it seriously, there won't be enough of you here. The results you're experiencing and the emotions rolling within you are direct results of how you're showing up to yourself and others all day, every day. What about making it personal at home but keeping a politically strategic distance at work? If that is the model, we ultimately absent our spirit from our work. Then we come home and complain about it all. My boss is an idiot, our customers are unreasonable, my colleagues aren't pulling their weight. Whoever awaits our arrival at home receives the brunt of all our angst and anger. There is no workable separation of selves at work and at home. We are ourselves all over the place and it is this real self that is felt and experienced at a deeply personal level by ourselves and everyone on the receiving end of us, whether we acknowledge it or not. In Travelling Mercies, Anne Lamott writes... Everything is usually so masked or perfumed or disguised in the world and it's so touching when you get to see something real and human. No matter how neurotic the members of the group, how deeply annoying or dull, when people have seen you at your worst, you don't have to put on the mask as much. And that gives us licence to try on that radical hat of liberation, that hat of self-acceptance. A refresher. In each conversation you have at work and at home, come out from behind yourself, into the conversation and make it real. When you offer up your true self, others will recognise it and respond. Your body will manifest the pictures your mind sends to it. So clarify where you want to go with your life in 3D cinematic widescreen surround sound. If you overhear yourself saying, I don't know, ask yourself, what would it be if I did know? Take yourself seriously. Take your life personally. Otherwise, there won't be enough of you here. Chapter 3. Principle 3. Be here, prepared to be no one else. No. Be here, prepared to be nowhere else. The experience of being understood versus interpreted is so compelling you can charge admission. B. Joseph Pine II, The Experience Economy. There is a profound difference between having a title, a job description or a marriage licence and being someone to whom people commit at the deepest level. If we wish to accomplish great things in our organisations and in our lives, then we must come to terms with a basic human need. Humans share a universal longing to be known and being known to be loved, valued, respected Being known is at the top of the list. In The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna, a character thinks, I always thought it was what I wanted, to be loved and admired. Now I think perhaps I'd like to be known. Psychologist Jeffrey Bernstein believes that understanding is more important than love, especially when it comes to intimate relationships. He writes, 
As a psychologist for more than 25 years, I can tell you that I have never had an adult look back at her childhood and complain that her parents were too understanding. And similarly, I have met many divorced people who still love each other, but yet they never really understood each other. I suspect that one of the reasons couples don't understand each other is because when there are disagreements, one or both leave the room. My husband and I never fight, a friend told me, not with each other or with anyone else. I replied, I'm sorry to hear that. How can you see someone if there is never anything that put that put... <laughs> How can you see someone if there is never anything about that person that puzzles or irritates you? When our conversations with others disregard the core need of being understood, our lives can seem like an ongoing, exhausting struggle to influence others to do what we want them to do, to rise to their potential, to accomplish the goals of the organisation or of the relationship. We persuade, cajole, manipulate and issue directives. Nothing changes. Deadlines are missed. The scenery is boring. People and relationships are on automatic pilot. Consider this passage in the Fifth Discipline Field Book, edited by Peter Senge. Among the tribes of northern Natal in South Africa, the most common Zulu greeting is the expression Sawibona. It literally means, I see you. The reply is, Nakikona, or I am here. The order of the exchange is important. Until you see me, I do not exist. It's as if when you see me, you bring me into existence. Sawubona. Only when we genuinely see the people who are important to us can we hope to succeed as agents for positive change. Having misread many individuals throughout our lifetime, however, we often find that discovering someone else's authentic self can be complicated in our increasing cynicism. In Philip Roth's The Human Stain, a character suggests, by a certain age, one's mistrust is so exquisitely refined that one is unwilling to believe anybody, or to know anyone, or to get too close. Yet we must learn to rebuild the links that connect people and, and that provide an effective antidote to cynicism and disaffection. We must transform the way we speak, the way we ask, the way we listen. How do we get to know another person? How do we get past, how are you, I'm fine? By really asking and really listening. By being with someone, even if only for a brief moment, prepared to be nowhere else. I worked for a man who did this beautifully. Fred Timberlake when I was 16, I got a summer job as an assistant to Fred Timberlake, head of sales and marketing at Cook Paint and Varnish in Kansas City, Missouri. I could type 100 words a minute and, as this was before computers, I sat at an IBM Selectric, the metal ball of type twirling furiously. During my second week on the job, Mr Selectric suddenly froze and I looked up, shocked to see Mr Timberlake holding the cord after having pulled the plug from the outlet. He was smiling. He handed me a sheet of paper. What do you think of this advertising layout? I glanced at the layout, then looked behind me, certain that there must be someone else from whom Mr Timberlake was expecting intelligent input. But there was no one there, and Mr Timberlake was still standing in front of me, waiting for a response. 
The expression on his face, his posture and the full-stop silence encompassing my desk and seemingly everything within miles persuaded me that he was really asking. I studied the advertising layout. It featured a stack of paint cans with colourful graphics, paint spilling from each can. My impulse was to shrug and say, I don't know, I don't have any experience in advertising. However, I had the impression that Mr Timberlake anticipated my response with genuine interest. I didn't want to disappoint my boss, so I thought hard. Well, my mum thought about painting our living room for a long time, but she couldn't make up her mind what colour to use. Then she saw a photograph in a magazine of a really pretty room with walls painted a colour she liked, and she went right out that day and brought paint. I think the picture helped her imagine what our living room could look like. Maybe if you showed a pretty room with walls painted a great colour, it would give people the encourage to go and buy some paint. Mr Timberlake listened as I spoke. When I stopped, he stood quietly for a moment, then said, Thank you, Susan. I'm sending this back to the drawing board. Throughout that summer, whenever my Selectric froze, I would smile and prepare to answer another of Mr Timberlake's questions. In his presence, I became a bigger human being. Every person who worked for Fred Timberlake would have followed him anywhere. It's amazing how this seemingly small thing, simply paying fierce attention to another, really asking, really listening, even during a brief conversation, can evoke such a wholehearted response. A Chinese proverb says, When a question is posed ceremoniously, the universe responds. When someone really asks, we really answer. And somehow, both of us are validated. Think for a moment about the kind of attention you bring to your conversations. While someone is talking, where are your thoughts? When you are face to face, do you look at the individual in front of you or do your eyes roam the room in a sort of perpetual surveillance? While you're talking with someone on your phone, do you scan your emails? And can you tell when someone else is scanning his? The assignment in this chapter will help you learn to be with someone, prepare to be nowhere else. You've done important work in the first two chapters. You've written your stump speech and listened others, and listed others with whom you need to have important conversations. You've had a fierce conversation with yourself using the mineral rights model. The first question you answered in your stump speech was, where am I going? You can't answer the second question, who is going with me, until you know who that someone is. Do I want this person as a member of my team, as a client? Am I eager to commit to this relationship? Do I really know this person? By the end of this chapter, you'll be ready to have a fierce conversation with someone else. A conversation that will be significantly differentiated from others you have had. You'll explore an important issue by asking questions and listening carefully to your partner's responses. Anyone with whom you have this conversation will go away from it having enjoyed your complete attention and feeling known by you. A rare and wonderful thing. The one-to-one. One of the most difficult decisions I've ever made was to stop chairing my group of Seattle CEOs in order to free up more time for writing and speaking. For 13 years, I had a 50-yard line seat on some of the most interesting lives in town. Each month, 16 non-competing CEOs spent a day together. At times, I would bring in an outside expert for the morning, someone who would engage the group in an intimate dialogue guaranteed to provoke learning. In the afternoon, we focused on the most pressing issues of three or four of the members. In this competitive economy, how can I attract top talent? What customer relationship management system is the best fit for my company? What is your evaluation of this potential acquisition? How can we build our brand? 
I loved those days and looked forward to the interaction of the group. They were genuinely glad to be together, focused on their businesses in the company of peers with no agenda other than to help one another succeed. Once an issue was introduced, we mined for the group gold and struck rich veins by posing hard questions. The other interaction each month, the one-to-one, was in some ways more satisfying to me than the group sessions. I've talked about these conversations already. This was a member's time alone with me and mine with him or her. I knew, because my clients had told me in ways I could not discount, that these fierce conversations meant as much to them as to me. Reality was interrogated, learning was provoked, the tough issues were tackled, and our relationship was enhanced. During the gorgeous days of summer and fall, several members preferred to get out of their offices and meet me at Green Lake. It took an hour to walk around the lake. Two strolls around Green Lake provided just enough time to cover everything going on in the CEO's corporate and personal life. I once made the mistake of scheduling three Green Lake sessions on the same day. During six trips around the lake, the conversations were so riveting that I didn't feel a thing until the next morning when I leapt out of bed and my legs almost buckled beneath me. Here's the thing I most want you to understand. I had little or no experience in such diverse businesses as rapid prototyping, software development, fine art supplies, public accounting, coffee and commercial construction. What I did have was a fierce affection for each of my clients, genuine curiosity about the topic of the moment, an insatiable appetite for learning and a fierce resolve to be with each individual prepared to be nowhere else. This set of characteristics translates to personal relationships as well. For relationships to move forward and upward, you must have fierce affection for the other person. You must have genuine curiosity about what is going on with that person at any given time. You must have an insatiable appetite for learning more every day about he or she, about who he or she is and where he or she wants to go and how this does or doesn't mesh with who you are and where you want to go. And all of this is helped significantly by your willingness to occasionally set aside all of the topics ping-ponging inside your own head and simply be with this other person, here and now. Perhaps you have a creeping foreboding that, in some instances, all this getting to know someone, all this being present stuff, involves listening endlessly to someone telling you more than you ever wanted to know about a series of boring topics, all the gory details about who did what to whom. This would not work for me or for most people I know. Few of us are blessed with unending patience or the ability to demonstrate genuine interest in every individual or issue that crosses our paths. This is certainly true of anyone heading up an organisation or a team within an organisation tasked to pull off miracles in a short time frame, which is what the business world requires of us daily. Time that busy people have set aside to talk with anybody about anything is time not to be taken lightly. Something needs to be set in motion as a result of their time with others. Every conversation has to count. If this sounds like you or like you in certain situations, then be comforted by the following. Yes, the conversation is the relationship. One conversation at a time, you are building, destroying or flatlining your relationships. It is possible, however, to create high-intimacy, low-maintenance relationships, one relatively brief conversation at a time. If that sounds good to you, read on. Getting past how are you? 
Somewhere in our histories, most of us have come across an individual who remains a cipher to us, a co-worker who seems to be wrapped in Teflon carrying a shield, a relative with whom you always end up in some kind of misunderstanding. No matter how much you try, you don't seem to be able to connect with that person in any meaningful way. You're not sure where he or she is coming from and the feeling is probably mutual. You've been tempted to say, I've been hanging out with you for years and I still don't know who you are or what you want. And sotto voce. Sotto voce? Frankly, I've lost interest. The problem does not always lie in the lack of time together. Almost every busy parent has felt guilty about not spending enough time with his or her child. Most couples express concern that they have not been spending as much time with their mates as they feel they should. Most leaders suspect that things would go more smoothly if they spent more time with the individuals on their leadership team and that they, in turn, should do the same with the people who report to them. So we carve out the time, sometimes grudgingly. A parent sits down to talk with a child. A couple gets a babysitter and goes out to dinner. A leader schedules a meeting with a direct report. What happens? Not much. Just space, uncomfortable space stretching out in front of you. Many do not make it past, how are you? I'm fine. Many of us have imagined saying, by the way, I only have three days to live, or I robbed a bank and I'm running away with the bartender at Trudy's Tavern, just to see if anyone would notice. Kathleen de Burka, the central character in My Dream of You by Noala O'Fwalane, describes a missed conversation with a companion escorting to her to an awards ceremony, who tells her not to be nervous. Kathleen replies, I'm not nervous in public. She then shares her interior dialogue with the reader. This was an invitation to ask me what I meant and for me to tell him about being afraid of the people I knew, not the people I didn't know, and for him to tell me what he felt and so on, but he didn't know how to talk that kind of talk. When people are not paying attention, not really engaged, there are many missed opportunities to clamber out of the usual conversational box and talk about something interesting and memorable. However, while most people think the problem lies with others, what if there is something else at work here? What if you're the problem? What if you're so unengaged and unengaging that nobody hears you, nobody really listens to you, nobody really responds to you? Perhaps you're too polite or too self-conscious or too self-absorbed or too politically correct or too cautious. The net result? Unconsciously, We end our conversations as soon as we initiate them, too afraid of what we might say or hear. In the workplace, this translates into the typical exchange. How's the project going? Great. Everything working out? You bet. Good. That's what I like to hear. No one's really asking. No one's really listening. Have a good day? Yeah, you? Sure. Hmm. Even? I'm dying. That's nice. No one engages. Nothing changes. So what do we do about this? For starters, being with someone prepared to be nowhere else takes courage. It's unlikely any of us will really ask unless and until we're prepared to really hear the response and respond in turn. Addressing a potentially difficult or complex topic authentically with someone here and now. Where do you get the courage? In part, simply by recognising that if you chicken out now, you'll pay the price later. Recognising that if you or someone else feels a conversation is needed, it is. If a sensitive or significant topic comes up unbidden, seize the moment. Those conversations you listed in Chapter 2 need to take place. They're important to your success and happiness, and I would venture to guess to other people's success and happiness as well. 
avoiding or postponing a conversation, downplaying its importance or trying to bluff your way through it only delays or accelerates a very bad day. A reminder here, so often people forget that one of the fiercest conversations any of us can have is to tell someone how important he or she is in our lives, how much we value and love that person. For many people, that is more difficult than bringing up a concern. If none of the conversations you listed in Chapter 2 involves letting someone know what he or she means to you or to your, or your organisation, go back and add a conversation. Now, let's focus on one of the basics of being present. Eye contact. So simple and yet so difficult. Soft eyes and ears. Many people make very little contact during a conversation. Not even eye contact. A vivid experience I had of this was with Mark, a high-level leader of a global organisation. Mark had invited me to talk about fierce conversations with his executive staff during a two-day retreat. When I arrived at the site, I met with Mark to review the ideal outcomes from my time with his team and to find out how things were going so far. Mark didn't look at me. During my conversation with Mark, no matter which one of us was talking, he simply did not look at me. Eventually, I said... While we've been talking, I've noticed you haven't looked at me. Mark smiled, glanced at me, then looked away and responded, I haven't decided if I like you yet. So until you've made up your mind whether or not you like me, you will withhold eye contact. He smiled again. That's what I do. Do you do this with new members of your executive team? For whatever period of time it takes you to decide whether or not you like them, you withhold eye contact. That's right. Well... I feel it acutely, this withholding of yourself, of your approval, and I'm puzzled. You invited me here to produce a result you say you want. It seems like we should be collaborating. I'd like to feel you're joining me in this conversation, and it would help if you'd look at me while we talk. Mark was looking at me now, not smiling. I wondered if he would stand up and say, we're done, you're out of here. But instead, he thought for a moment and then said, OK, let's work. One more thing, I offered. If you're not looking at the people on your team when you're talking with them, be aware that they may feel they're invisible to you, devalued. I don't imagine that's what you want. Half an hour later, as Mark introduced me, he said, Susan practices what she preaches. I know. She told me I had lousy eye contact and that it didn't feel very good, so I'm going to work on that. Fifty people smiled and nodded. I do not, however, recommend maintaining maniacal eye contact during your conversations. Many of us have wanted to back away from an avid individual whose eyes seem to drill through us and out the other side. What I do recommend are soft eyes, which I learned about years ago when I lived in Japan and studied karate. During the last half hour of each session, everyone formed a circle around one individual and could attack the person in the centre of the circle from any direction at a time with no warning. When I was the vulnerable individual in the centre, I initially strained to see everyone, my eyes darting from person to person, whirling and turning so that I wouldn't miss anything. I often ended up felled, not by someone behind me, but by someone right in front of me, seeing that the harder I tried to see, the more I missed. The sensei taught us that if instead of trying to focus on any one thing, we softened our eyes and allowed the world to come to us, we would see a great deal more. We would catch subtle motion. Our peripheral vision would become acute. This was true. Over time, we developed the proverbial eyes in the backs of our heads, and it was effortless. The same thing happens with our listening. 
We may succeed in hearing every word, yet miss the message altogether. A great example of me missing important messages was at a business meeting in Tokyo. I noticed a young woman writing continuously. Following the meeting, I commented that it was good to have someone capturing everything that was said. Oh, she wasn't writing down what was said, a colleague explained. She was writing down what was not said. But she never stopped writing the entire time. My companion simply smiled. In conversations, soft eyes and soft ears allow a partner to come to you, to communicate to you. It's not about being clever or having degrees in a particular field. It's about being genuinely interested, really asking and paying fierce attention to the response or the lack of response. Years later, when I worked for a search firm, someone asked me how I could bear to interview people all day. It was as if this person felt that interviews with job candidates couldn't be interesting, that somehow they must all be alike. The question astounded me. I almost always lost myself in those interviews. Sometimes a colleague would later ask, was she the one with the pink piping around the collar of her jacket? Or, he wore glasses and had a beard, right? I could never remember. Who cares if the guy has a beard? He's a delightful, interesting human being who raises basil as a hobby, makes incredible pesto. I don't remember what colour his eyes are, but I do know that he had an eye for detail, incredible organisation skills and a wonderfully wry sense of humour. I think he'd be successful with several of our clients and who notices piping, for God's sake? More recently, I worked with a woman who had incredible hands. I could listen to her through isolated hand movements. At first I felt self-conscious focusing on her hands, but they had so much to say. At one point I told her that her hands were wonderfully expressive. She looked at her hands a moment and said, This morning I put on my coat and my mother's hands came out the sleeves. There is so much more to listen to than words. Listen to the whole person.